Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, thanks for joining me for the second part of the Tommy Reichenthal interview. I hope you guys really enjoyed the first part and that you're ready again to hear, well, a story as only Tommy Reichenthal can tell it. In the last episode, of course, we were looking at Tommy Reichenthal's childhood and we were finding out what it was like to be growing up in a Slovakia that was gradually becoming more influenced by its larger Nazi neighbour. In this episode, of course, we're resuming from that cliffhanger from the last episode, where, having been captured and the plans to make themselves safe all in ruins, the Reichenthal family were essentially at the mercy of fate and God and their Nazi. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
SS Gestapo masters. It's a terrifying story, it's a harrowing story, and it's a story that contains a fair amount of gory details. Not exactly suitable for children, so that's why I've marked it as explicit. It's not because Tommy Reichenthal suddenly goes on a big rant and curses loads or anything like that. It's more because the content I find would be a bit upsetting for the younger, younger kids among us. This episode does go into a good bit of detail about what life was like in Belson, but it also details what life was like after these horrors. And Tommy Reichenthal talks for a bit on how his life was kind of slowly, gradually put back together after his experiences in Belson, and how he went from being a concentration camp victim to being a, well, a normal person, really. Of course, one of the most surprising things that I didn't know beforehand was that after moving to Israel, Tommy Reichenthal actually fought for Israel during the Suez Crisis, which I guess just goes to show that sometimes even when you don't expect it, things can come full circle. I didn't really want to interrupt him, so I didn't really ask him much about his experience in that, but don't worry, we'll have time enough if we really need to to talk to Tommy about that in the future. We conclude this episode on how Tommy Reichenthal came to the decision to talk about what happened to him and how it was that he was persuaded to talk about it. As we'll see, this one experience ends up opening, much to Tommy Reichenthal's own surprise, the floodgates to what would be a reinvention of his retirement. I hope you enjoy it, guys. The next voices you hear will be myself and Tommy Reichenthal. Well, we were put into a cattle cart. This this is a trip that I I I think it was the most difficult moment of of my experience with with the Holocaust because. One minute you living a civilized life, you you have you shower every day, mm. you wash yourself, you eat a properly, and thing, and suddenly you go into this cattle cart, it's close behind you, mm. and you become like the animal mm. in it. You, there is no toilet facility. There is a, a, in the middle. There is a big barrel this couple of buckets that serve as a toilet, very little water, so you have it for drinking, not for hygiene. Uh, people are crying, sick people, old people. From one moment, being a human being, to the next moment, you are an animal, the stench becomes unbearable. Uh, there is no privacy at all. Yeah. And... and we travelled like this for seven days. Seven days? Seven days. And there is a reason for it, why it took seven days. So, when we were travelling, very soon we realised, you know, you hear outside, the train sometimes stopped occasionally, they would open the carriage and empty the bowl, right. and then close it again. So you hear people talking outside. So at a certain stage of our trip, we suddenly heard they're speaking all German. Yeah. The, the railway workers and everything. So everybody said, we're not in Poland. Mm. We are in Germany. So this was the first uh, sign mm. that we're not going to Auschwitz. Right. Because we were the first transport of mother, children, and old people 
that didn't go to Auschwitz. Wow. Why? Because on the 7th of uh, November 1944, the German blew up the gas chamber in Auschwitz. Right. Because the Russian army was nearing yeah. and Auschwitz had to be evacuated, so they didn't want it to leave uh, that the Russian will find these yeah. glass chambers. So I don't know if you were in Auschwitz. I was, yeah. And you can see the glass chamber are all, they left the ruin there. Mm. I was there as well. They left the ruin. The German blew that I'm not, not that thing. So they left only the ruin there. Wow. And therefore, our train was diverted. <sighs> Because we were in the train on the 7th of oh, uh, wow. November. And instead of going uh, uh, westward, yeah. we went eastward towards Berlin oh. and then up northwards, Hamburg, Hanover mm. and Belgium-Belsen. Wow. So this why it took so took long. So Otherwise, long. it would have taken two or three days. We would have been around. So, Seven days, but the, I found about this right. only when I researched the whole yeah. thing that we were the first transport. Not if I, if we were arrested a week before, yeah. I wouldn't be here. Yeah, because we were the first people that didn't go to two hours. So Amazing. you know the luck. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, the lucky Irish. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, and uh, Belgian Belgian. Well. I, of course, I don't uh, forget the day we arrived. Uh, it was raining, it was cold outside November, you know, in mm. northern Germany, very cold. It, suddenly the door was open and we were greeted. We shouted, heraus, heraus, mm. out, out. And they took us, put us in rows, and then we were marched for about two hours. We marched uh, through a forest raining, we were absolutely soaked, and after night it was, uh, suddenly we saw this big chimney and uh, the fire was coming out of the chimney, so you can imagine, yeah. the adult among us, they thought this is, they, they know about the yeah. crematoria, about the, and the gas chamber, they thought they are taking us there, so... Wow. You can imagine the atmosphere, they thought this is the last yeah. minute hour that we are walking on this earth. As children, we didn't know, mm -hmm. again, I, I wasn't taught. But we went to the camp and you, you could see the watchtower with the searchlight and mm. the machine guns and the guards and things. All very frightened, we were put, uh, gone to the one of the blocks, and they told us go to sleep. Next morning, we were just told that we are in Belgian Belgium. We didn't know where Belgian Belgium was, or mm. what Belgian Belgium was, and that um, in, we are in German. That's all what they told us. We saw around uh, skeleton. There were no. Um, they were all malnourished. Mm. They had shaved heads. You know, the, the eyes were sunk into the face. You, you wouldn't think they were human beings. Yeah. You, we didn't know if they were men or they were women. Right. Because they had no attributes, you know, yeah. they were just skeleton. you know. After only a couple of days, we discovered that we were in a woman's camp. Oh, really? 
And we used to see these skeletons walking around and uh, occasionally they would fall down because we were in the area where the hospital was. Okay. Uh, hospital. I mean, yeah. they, were, they, they were not in the hospital for, for to be cured. There mm-hmm. were no medication there or anything. Mind you, when the camp was liberated, mm-hmm. they found a hut. Mm. Full with medication. Really? Full with medication, like wow. a, properly for a hospital. They never used it. Oh. The women that were brought in there, they were brought there because they were mortally sick. Mm. So we saw these women walking around and occasionally they would just collapse, mm. fall down. And as children, we used to play outside, we would stop playing and waiting to see if she will get up or not. Yeah. We knew if she got up, she has another day to live. Yeah. If she didn't come up, she died. Yeah. So we actually saw people die in front of our eyes. Wow. As kids, we saw people dying. They fell, never got up again. Wow. That was the end of it. You know, the, the food and everything. The food was horrible and very little. Mm. Uh, you can interpret the amount of food we ate mm. scientifically. We eat about 2,500 calories a day. Mm. If you are in sport or anything like people that do heavy work, they would eat 3,500 sure. calories, you know. Our intake of calories was between 600 and 700 calories a day. That's amount that you... C- can't sustain life. Yeah. It's equivalent to six water crackers. <sighs> that was the food for a day. So what happened with a human being? The body begins to eat itself from inside. Yeah. And you're getting skinnier and skinnier till you become like a skeleton. Mm. And finally you die. Yeah. Bergen-Belsen was not extermination camp in a sense. We did not have gas chamber. Mm. People were not executed there, like mass execution or anything like this. People were dying due to starvation, disease, and the cold. The, the disease was typhoid. Yeah. Once you got a typhoid, you got diarrhea, you got dehydrated, you were very, very weak, mm. eventually you died. If you got typhoid, that was like a sentence to death. Wow. And it didn't happen overnight. Mm. It took a week, two, maybe a month. So it was a very painful death. And I talk about escape from calm. Uh, you know, people were trying to escape the camp. In other words, during the night, they would run towards the perimeter. They would start to climb on the barbed wire. The guards on the watchtower see you, shoot you. Mm. We, in the night, we heard the shots being fired. And in the morning, you see corpses lying over the barbed wire that were <sighs> shot during the night. And this was happening every day. Yeah. I don't believe, and we don't believe, that they were trying to escape. They just, that, that wanted, they to just wanted to end it all. Yeah. You know, they committed suicide. They knew they couldn't escape. I mean, they 
immediately see them, you yeah. know, when the, well, this what was happening. People were just ending it mm. because they couldn't bear the suffering of course. that they were going through. Their life was very difficult, you know. Everything that we take for granted um, mm. was very complicated in the camp. Uh, I describe in one of my stories that um, I hated the latrine <laughs> because uh, I was a little boy, you know. Mm. So when I went to the latrine, when I sat on the plank, mm. my leg didn't reach the floor, you know. So somebody had to convince me and hold me, <laughs> you know, very embarrassing. Mm. But not only this. It was public, you know, mm. for, for other things. So you could find yourself relieving yourself <laughs> and another four people sitting beside you doing mm. the same thing, you know. The whole thing was dirty and, and wet and, I mean, the conditions were... So we were there, uh, was uh, from November, December. January already the German army was retreating. Yeah. And they were taking uh, the prisoner with. Now in Auschwitz, for example, that was a slave labor camp. There was, at any time, over 150,000 inmates in Auschwitz. So they had to evacuate. Uh, many of them come to Bergen-Belsen. Right. It is estimated over 35,000 come to Bergen-Belsen. Bergen-Belsen was built for about 25,000 oh. prisoners. And suddenly, over a very short period, mm -hmm. suddenly, there were over 60,000. So the huts that were built for 150, 200 people uh, contained suddenly 600, 700 people. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine the congestion yeah. in a small place, so many people. Epidemic of typhus yeah. broke out. And once the epidemic uh, broke out, people began to die mm. in their hundreds. It is estimated that from February, March and up April, per day, over 500 people were dying. About 17,000 people per month. Wow. My grandmother died, I forgot to mention, on 7th of March, uh, 1945. She died in the camp from starvation and just gave up and she died there and the way she was buried uh, was simple two men come into the room one picked up on the leg one by hand they threw on a, a cart mm. they, when the cart was uh, full they uh, come to one of these piles of corpses outside and threw her onto the corpse and that was I, as a child, I, I went out to look for my, where my grandmother was buried. She was buried under a pile of corpses, you know. God. So, we had a crematoria in yeah. Belgium-Belsen, but the crematoria was there to burn the corpses of uh, inmates that died. Mm. And when we arrived to uh, uh, Belgium-Belsen, the mortuary was actually not far away where we were living. Every day there would be several dozens of corpses there in the evening. A cart will come or a lorry. They would pick up these corpses, brought to the 
uh, crematoria and they will be burned there. For the obvious reason, yeah. the Germans, they were thinking forwards and they wanted to burn the corpses. So there was no graveyard or yeah. anything. in No evidence. No evidence. Yeah. They can say nobody ever died here. Yeah. But once this amount of um, inmates were dying in such a hunt, the crematoria couldn't cope with no. it. So the corpses were just left all over the place. Oh, God. And this is this horrific stories when I speak about it, that we used to have sort of a grassy area where we play, mm. and suddenly there were pile of corpses. So we as children used to run among these corpses. That was our play area. Yeah. And we used to, we got used to it. These corpses were decomposing and rotting away. You can imagine the, the smell all around because mm. the corpses were lying all around the place. It is estimated that on the day of liberation, mm. which was on 15th of April 1945, that there were between 20 and 30,000 corpses outside. So in other words, open graveyard. Yeah. Can you imagine that? And these, these, these corpses. They... So at the time we were expecting liberation because mm. when the inmates from Auschwitz come to Belgium Belgium in January, they told us about the gas chamber. Oh, okay. We didn't know how it's all. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the adults among us, they knew about the gas but they, they didn't know what, how it was. So they told us all the things that was happening in Auschwitz and they told us that the gas chamber were blown up and that the German army was retreating. Mm. So it was only a matter of time that yeah. they will liberate Belgian Belgium, but unfortunately it took about four months yeah. from January till 15th of April. Yeah. But on 15th of April we were liberated. I remember the day we heard this noise uh, of workers coming through the camp. So we all ran to see what was happening. In actual fact, the guards from the Watchtower, mm. they, uh, they escaped on the 11th of April. So suddenly we didn't see any guards in the oh, Watchtower. Right. So we knew that something was happening. Yeah. But nobody dared to leave the camp. Yeah. They were all afraid that perhaps the Germans set up an ambush or something outside. And once the inmates start to run out, they, they will start to shoot us, you know. So nobody dared to escape. We didn't have any water because they blew up the pump, the German. Any food that was still in the storage, the inmates went ransacked the place. Yeah. So we didn't have any food. Nothing was organized. There was uh, chaos. And when we heard the noise, we ran to see what was happening. And we saw the jeeps were going through and... Um, the lorries and the tanks were coming through the camp and mm. uh, the British army was uh, shouting through loud this is the British army, you are being liberated. We didn't even know what liberated <laughs> means, but we knew that um, we were free. Yeah. There was no celebration, there right. was no jumping and 
because 90% of the inmates were mortally sick. Yeah. So they only stood there smiling, realizing this is the thing. And some of the women, uh, Belgian Belgium was built in the middle of a forest, so some of the women broke some branches from the trees and they threw them at the, you know, because there was no flower. Yeah. Right? Threw them towards the wow. soldier and thing. But it was sort of a subdued, yeah. but happy ending to, to the suffering that was going on. But unfortunately, people were still dying mm. after we were liberated. It is estimated that up to 12,000 more people died. Oh. The, and out of these 12,000, they think about 2,000 died because the British army saw what was happening, the starvation. Mm. They left trailers with, uh, Food. piled up with uh, army portion. And yeah. these, these were things that are a lot of protein and, mm. you know, for the army. Yeah. Uh, beef, tin beef and mm. thing like this. Now, the inmates couldn't digest course, this, this yeah. food and it actually killed them. Oh. And they estimated about 2,000 died before they realized mm. that thing and they quickly took these trailers away. We were dead and kept after the liberation for another two months uh, because as quarantine because of yeah. the disease. They're afraid that if we get out of the camp, we can um, bring the diseases out to the civilian population. After about, it was about June, buses from Slovakia, Czechoslo Czechoslovakia, time from camp to Belgian Belgium and picked us up. It took, I don't know, about two weeks uh, with the buses till we come to... Uh, and to Slovakia, I remember we used to sleep in houses of the Germans, you know, yeah. when they're driving through Germany. And, uh, you know, they were so frightened, the German at the time. <laughs> My mother and aunt, they spoke perfect German. And in the houses, uh, they put us in their bedrooms and <sighs> thing. And we would ask, where you are sleeping? He said, oh, in the kitchen, you know. You sleep in our, wow. our beds and things. Well, it, it, it was terrible. They all said we didn't know we, all this nonsense. But anyway, we arrived to Slovakia. We didn't know about my father. Mm -hmm. My father didn't know uh, about us. In actual fact, we, we found out of each other. No, we, we found out in the camp already. Mm -hmm. Because the first thing that the Red Cross did after the liberation they began to gather a list of survivors. Wow. And this list then they displayed in the relevant countries because they were different countries. You right. Know, Poland, Holland, Germany, Slovakia, Romania, Hungary. And all the survivors in the relevant country, they would put the list uh, on the Red Cross building. Mm -hmm. So they, they put the list... Uh, of Slovak and Czech thing. I have a copy of that. Wow, list. Imagine really? his other name in it. Wow. And my one of my uncle came to Prague. Yeah. Because it was in Prague to see if anybody of the family survived. There were over forty of us taken away. We mm -hmm. were the only 
six six of us, one of one, five in Belgium, Belgium, mm. and one in Buchenwald survived. So when he came and saw the list and he saw us, uh, we suddenly read Judith Reichenthal, Nikolaus Reichenthal, he phoned my father huh. and said, uh, your family survived. And he said, where they survive? And he said, uh, Belgian Belsen. So he took a postcard. He wrote, uh, Judith Reichenthal, Belgian Belsen concentration camp, Germany. <laughs> and in, in the camp, we had a big uh, display uh, uh, board yeah. where they pinned all the posts that come into the camp. So every day we used to go to see if right. anything comes from us. Yeah. So at the time, I remember we used to see some people were joyful and uh, happy because they discovered um, mm. that uh, their loved ones survived. Yeah. And then you see some in a very desperate uh, crying mm. and, and being in a terrible state because they discovered the loved one yeah. first. But one day... We go there and there is the postcard from my father and yeah. he wrote, I'm alive, I'm waiting for you in the village. Wow. So when we come back to Slovakia, it must have been beginning of July 1945, well, we, we, we met the cousin, he survived and I remember my aunt kissing him and, but nothing was talked about the husband, you know, father. Mm. And she's looking around. Where is Jula? You know, where is my husband? You know. And her son said, "I I will tell you about him." She realized he didn't survive. Oh, God. But anyway, we met my father, and it was a happy ending to the <laughs> whole thing. But uh, I was uh, put into hospital in in uh, Belgian Belsen as well after the liberation because I was uh, very, very weak and mm. if we were not liberated at the time that we were, it was only a matter of time, yeah. maybe another couple of weeks or a month, I would have uh, perished as well. Mm. Uh, so they put me in hospital and when I come then to Slovakia, I was sent for recuperation in the Tatry mountain you know, fresh air there and oh, yeah. a nice place to, to be, to recuperate, plenty of food and everything. I was there about four to six weeks. There was no uh, nobody welcoming us yeah. as uh, people, as Slovaks. Mm. We were in fact refugees because we come from the western part of Europe, which was occupied by... England, uh, America and mm. Canadian forces, uh, Slovakia was occupied by Russians. So mm. we come from the west to the east. Yeah. Therefore we were considered as refugee yeah. people that lived yeah. for generations. <laughs> there was no welcoming thing. There were no doctors or psychiatrists or any treatment for us after trauma that we were through. We come back back to get ourselves on the feet. My father got the farm back and we, we were also lucky in the sense that we found everything in the house because um, 
Normally when Jews were taken away, mm. the neighbor or people, they would come into the house and ransack the place, yeah. and steal everything. But when my father was arrested, uh, one man was put in our house uh, to supervise five uh, Jewish farms that were in the neighboring villages. Okay. Our farm and the five additional farm. Right. So he was a collaborator, of course. Yeah. So when Slovakia was liberated by the Russian forces, which was 5th of April, my father came back. So, of course, this fellow that was mm. in our house, he escaped. Yeah. So that everything was in it wow. as we left it. <laughs> the carpet that picture of the families were still on the wall and, wow. and all the delf and everything yeah, was there you yeah. know? and we always uh, say that uh, he was a bachelor this yeah. man if there was a woman <laughs> probably the pictures and everything would have been gone thrown into the bin and you know yeah. everything would have been gone from there but if the house was ransacked. Yeah. That's what usually happened. Picture of the family and everything disappears, mm, you know, yeah. thrown away. So family that survive, mm. they have nothing mm -hmm. to remember the, the family because it all was destroyed. Yeah. But we, there were the albums of the thing. Everything <sighs> was there, you know. Wow. Nothing was destroyed. So also in this respect, we, we were very lucky. Mm. Well, as a, as a, of course, I went to school. I, I was 10 years old at the time mm. when we came from uh, the camp. I couldn't write, I couldn't read, I couldn't do any mathematics. So I had to sit with six, seven-year-old kids <sighs> to very embarrassing uh, situation. Uh, I had to work very hard. I wasn't playing like normal children, yeah. do the homework and thing. I had to sit with my brother. Learning was very important. Yeah. And we had to learn and think and eventually I did catch up. It took about two years till I was sitting with my own age <laughs> and eventually I went to college and then of all places I went to Germany to study <laughs> uh, because I was... Uh, my father was a farmer and my brother became an engineer, a mechanical engineer. I liked the mechanical engineering, yeah. so we were not uh, cut for farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't want to know anything about farming. <laughs> so my father was very disappointed that nobody will take the farm over from him, you know. Oh. Yeah, eventually I I qualified as an engineer in Germany, but uh, we stayed in Slovakia till 1949, because in Slovakia when we came back, there was still anti-Semitism. The the brains of the Slovak people were still poisoned by the indoctrination. They still hated the Jews and. Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of that I remember when the Jews were coming back, uh, you know, the survivor that coming back, out of a population of 90,000 Jews that lived in Slovakia before the war, only around 17,000 survived. 
And when the survivors were coming back, the Slovak said, my God, more of them are coming back that were taken away. So the atmosphere yeah. wasn't very welcoming. Yeah. And um, I joined a Zionist uh, uh, movement and, yeah, in 1949. I emigrated to Israel. Oh, right. And uh, I went to a kibbutz. Mm. And then from the kibbutz, I joined the Israeli army. I was in the Israeli army, tank brigade. So no. I was a tank driver. Really? Uh, and then uh, when I was discharged from the army as a reservist, I was called back in 1956 to the <laughs> Suez campaign. Yeah. And uh, I fought. I fought to for my life for the second time. Wow. 1956-57, I went to Germany then. Okay. And I remember people asking me, how, how are you going to Germany of all places? Yeah. You know, I mean, we're talking about 10 years since, yeah. since I was in the concentration camp. But I wanted to be an engineer and mm. I wanted to get the best education in in engineering, mechanical engineering specifically, and the, the German, they were the mm. people, if you wanted to learn yeah. the thing, and I said, I want to get the best education, so all the harm they did, they can pay something back yeah. to, to my benefit, you yeah. know. But I, I always say this thing, <laughs> that uh, when they were telling me about it, how come you're going to uh, Germany of all places. At the time, the German helped Israel mm. off a lot, and they supplied Israel with uh, lorries and mm. equipment, not weapons, because uh, Germany was not allowed to manufacture at the time, but uh, equipment for the Israeli army and yeah. motorbike for the police and everything. And uh, I said, you know, when... Ben Gurion, he was the president yeah. of Israel. He said when he's uh, going on an official visit anywhere, he would be accompanied by uh, side riders, you know, mm. police, and <laughs> and uh, they ride the BMW motorbikes. <laughs> so if the president of Israel can be accompanied yeah. by a German motorbike, <laughs> I can go to Germany yeah. to study. Yeah. You know, that's what, what Fair I enough, think. yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, then something very interesting happened uh, when I, it was so towards the uh, end of 1959, I was contacted by industrialists from London mm. And he sent me a letter because my, um, one of my cousins was an operger in London. Okay. And her boss was a big industrialist. In, in. And one day she reads in a paper that uh, somebody is um, trying to build a factory in Ireland to oh. manufacture zip and they're looking for a manager to set the factory up. Hmm. Of course, at that time, in the 1959, Ireland had very little 
Mm. Uh, industrial, uh, you know, know-how yeah. of this, so nobody can forward. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody, because there were no many people that, I mean, when I compare it, when I come here in 1960 and today, this mm. is like two different yeah. countries, yeah. you know, the, the advances that happen here in mm. Ireland. I come here, I saw children still without shoes. Yeah. And look what, what the country is now. Yeah. You know, people don't realize that. So he advertised in England. Mm. And he had difficulty to get even in England. Uh, you wow. know, there was that, this hatred of, yeah. of uh, conflict between England and Ireland. So nobody came forward to, to... And my cousin saw it and she said to, to her boss, she said, you know, I have a cousin, he's studying engineering in Germany, maybe he will be interested. Mm. So that's, I get this ah. letter from this gentleman. And he said, I have a proposal, I mean I'm an engineer, I'm qualified engineer, diploma and everything. Mm. He said, um, I'm looking for somebody like you, uh, I have a proposition for you, come to London. Mm. And there was a ticket, for airline wow. ticket in the envelope for me. I come to her, I, I have a proposition, if we can make business, good. If we can't, you will have a holiday on my account. That's, <laughs> you got nothing so, to lose. <laughs> you know, but I was, what, 25, 26 year old. I said, oh, I'm not going to see London as well. <laughs> I had an uncle that uh, lived in London and uh, didn't see him for years. Mm. So I go to see him and... Uh, well, I went to London and uh, he said he put a proposition to me that he will send me to Italy to learn uh, how to make zips. He will send me to the factory that manufactures this machine, so I will be familiar with the machines. Mm. And when I come back, I will set the factory up for him. He said, uh, if you agree to it, we sign it, and from this moment you are my employee, you will get wages. <laughs> you know, and uh, this was not wages, I just to give you an example, at the time, uh, a man, uh, a woman, uh, earned here in Ireland about six uh, pounds a week, mm. in 1966, pounds a week. Wow. And men, and uh, about eight pound a week. If you were in a little position, you would earn eleven pound a week. That mm. was a good wage. Yeah, I had starting wage fifteen pound a week. What? Wow! And this is <laughs> from nothing to yeah. suddenly getting wages like like thing. So I went to Italy. Yeah. I stayed in Italy several months because at the time. Ireland had a huge unemployment, about 23%. Mm. So coming to Ireland was, for a foreigner was absolutely impossible. Yeah. So my boss had to negotiate here with the alien office and with the foreign office that I'm coming to Ireland mm. not taking job from Irish. I'm yeah. going to create job right, for that. Right. And, you know, till they're investigating this thing, you yeah. know, because they don't believe you. They yeah. think that it is all a story <laughs> to yeah. get you in. So eventually I got a work permit, I came here, uh, it was end of 1959 or beginning of 1960, I can never remember exactly. 
And I come here, I set the factory up, and while I was here, I met a Jewish girl, mm-hmm. fell in love, mm-hmm. got married, and I'm here still today. <laughs> As I mentioned, fortunately, my wife died in 2003. She had a cancer. We were 42 years together, 43 years together. Wow. We had three children, three boys we have, and, uh, well, now they're adult, of course, they're married. I have six grandchildren. Wow. <laughs> and now the last chapter, of course, is this, what I'm doing today. Yeah. Um, I didn't speak about my experiences for over 55 years, not because I didn't want to speak about it, I just couldn't speak about mm. it. I had it all in the back of my... Uh, back of my head, but I never talked about it. And mm. in fact, my wife, when she passed away, she didn't know much about uh, me at all because I never told her what I went through. Yeah, she only knew that I was a Holocaust survivor. Right. When my wife passed away, I had a business in in here in Dublin, because I didn't work for it, I think I, I had a, my own business as well. When my wife died, I decided that's it, I don't need to work anymore. Mm. Uh, I'm working for other people, I don't need anything. I, mm. My uh, sons, they all, thank God, uh, got good profession, they're quite successful and I have no problem. So what I'm working for, I go and a little bit uh, enjoy myself. Yeah. I was then, then around 70 year old, and but as I am, mm. I can't sit around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I decided uh, to start to write mm. what happened to me. Right. And I wrote a couple of articles for couple of magazines. Mm. Of course, they took the article, they published them, and the next thing, the media suddenly come on to me, and <laughs> I don't need to tell you what media <laughs> is. Yeah. Anything that they can do, bring something mm. new up, they're after you. So yeah. I was inundated with uh, journalists, with radio, with television, and um, the story came out. Mm. My children started to know. Yeah. They said, Dad, you never told us anything. <laughs> wow. They said anything. And in one of the schools, it was Zion School, one of my grandchildren was there, and he one time mentioned that his grandfather was is a Holocaust survivor. So the teacher asked them if I would give a lecture there. Right. And, uh, you know, like they invite a policeman or a, uh, somebody that is a smoker or somebody that drinks. They mm. invite people like this to, you know, sure. that people should know. Yeah. I went there. Mm. These were children, 11, 12 year old. I had no experience of uh, giving lectures <laughs> yeah. or anything like this. So suddenly I'm sitting there speaking about my experiences, no holding nothing back. Yeah. Which of course these are only children, <laughs> yeah. but I see twelve kids, they're all crying. Oh no. The teacher is crying. <laughs> oh. I'm crying. 
a disaster. Yeah. You know? And I said to myself, oh my God, what will happen now? The, the children will come home and tell them, and I will get letters and complaints. <laughs> how can talk to children, making them cry and all this? So I was really worried that yeah. I did a terrible mistake. <laughs> And but the opposite happened. Really? Next thing I get from the school and they say, "Would you come? This is only the class of my my the grandson. Mm. You know? Would you come and tell the story the whole school?" Yeah. And I said, "No, I can't do it. I I can't <laughs> do it." And, Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed the second part of the Tommy Reichenthal interview. Make sure, as always, to let myself and Tommy Reichenthal know what you thought by either sending me a message in any social media form or by sending me an email, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com, which I will happily pass on to Tommy. I'm sure Tommy would love to hear what you thought about it. Would you believe that he was worried you guys would be bored by what he had to say here? And he kept on asking me to cut the interview down to smaller bite-sized chunks. I don't think you really anticipated that I would change it into, well, three, like, 40-minute blocks, but there you go. I couldn't really do anything other than make it three episodes. The last thing I was going to do was cut out the story, even the bits that he thinks you guys may find boring. I think I speak for all of us when I say that Tommy Reichenthal's story is anything but boring, from the beginning to the end. In the next part, of course, we do some work towards bringing the story to an end. So I hope you'll join me then for part three. Until then, guys, thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.